0: Hello, and welcome to She Dynasty. I'm Valerie Moizel, and these are the Women Who Rule. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to She Dynasty. Today, I am going to be interviewing Vicky Shabo, and she is a senior fellow for paid leave policy and strategy at New America, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C., and Vicki has been working on gender equity issues for more than a decade. Hi, Vicki. Hi, Valerie. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. Um, So a little fun fact that I'm going to disclose, you and I have known each other for a very, very, very long time. Um, I think since we were how old would you say? Probably five. Really interesting. You know, when you're growing up, you never really think about when you're five or six, like what she's gonna do when she grows up, right? And we've recently it's so true. Recently reconnected, and, and it was um, so awesome to learn about what you've done and how much you've accomplished and the important work you're doing. And so super excited to have this important conversation with you today.
1: Thank you. Yeah, likewise. It is it is pretty mind boggling um, where people end up. I keep uh, I have a son who's quite an introvert in seventh grade, and I keep telling him he needs to pay more attention to the kids that he's with, and he's like, why should I do that? And I'm like, because you never know, like, who you might encounter later in your life. And like, you should, you should pay attention to people and invest in people. So yeah, yeah, great case in point.
0: (laughs) Awesome. So um, let's, let's start from the very beginning. We're going to, you know, She Dynasty is all about your journey and how you got to where you are. So we're going to talk a little bit about your background, but I definitely want to spend some time talking about the important work that you do, um, just because it's obviously just so crucial that we educate as many people as possible. And hopefully people listening will share this because it is such an important topic. But talk uh, a little bit about your childhood. Where are you from? where did you grow up? What was your childhood like?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in LA and lived a, I would say, pretty privileged life, like especially in this moment of racial injustice um, being so front of mind. I think, you know, this is sort of obvious but you know I feel like as a white middle class kid with a professional dad and mostly a stay-at-home mom until she went back to school when I was um, was six or seven, like lived a pretty blessed life like notwithstanding parental divorce and strife and all of those things. Um, and yeah, grew up in LA, went to LA public schools and then headed out to Claremont um, to Pomona College for undergrad where I became really passionate about politics and policy and sort of using those levers to change how society operates and the opportunities that people have. So I understand that you actually became
0: interested in social justice at a young age. What's the earliest memory that you have of um, really
1: taking interest? Yeah, that's a great question. So my dad was a public defender and then he was a California um, state court judge, first municipal court and then superior court And so I remember like going to his courtroom, going to his office um, and just sort of wondering how it was that people ended up in the criminal justice system. And that really sparked my interest. I think that's sort of one piece of it. And then when I was in junior high, I had a really dear man um, who was our choir teacher and I took private singing lessons with him and he had AIDS. And this was like in the mid 1980s. And I remember, you know, he sort of sat, you know, he had publicly said he had cancer, but he privately sat my mom down to say, actually, I have HIV AIDS and I want you to know because I don't want you having, you know, having Vicky come over here um, and being worried about risk. And so I just remember this, you know, the whole thing about in the 80s, like drinking glasses and were you gonna were you gonna catch HIV from, from a water glass? Were you gonna catch it from being in the same room with somebody, which of course now in the middle of COVID, you know, it's a different situation. But um, that really sort of turned me on to, to discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and to bias. Um, I started volunteering at AIDS Project LA when I was in high school and had sort of this set of uh, I was a phone buddy. And so I would like check in with this group of men um, every week and make phone calls to them. I would like go down to the APLA offices and do that. Um, I made a piece of the AIDS quilt for Mr. Kennedy. Um, and yeah, just became really passionate about inequality, whether it was racial inequality or gender inequality or our discrimination on the basis of who somebody was and who they loved. And so it's just like a, a deep part of me, I guess, um, that I carried into my young professional life, um, where I worked on Capitol Hill for a while. And then as a political and policy pollster and sort of worked on LGBTQ equality issues that way. And, women's political participation. And that took me to law school, also went to grad school for a period of time to study political science and ended up where I am now, which is having spent more than the last decade fighting to improve workplace policies and public policies that promote gender equity and racial equity and economic. So what did you think you wanted to be when you grew up? Oh, well, I wanted to be a Broadway star. Uh, Actually, like this. this is actually, yeah, funny story. I, um, really, really wanted to be an actress um, and, you know, took acting classes and took musical theater classes at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and actually, like, went to Carnegie Mellon for a pre-college summer musical theater program where I got my AP scores for English and for history, and that same summer came down to D.C. for the first time and visited the American History Museum, and that was actually pretty transformational. Like, I saw how cutthroat and how hard um, a college, like conservatory and musical theater would be. And honestly, like how much more talented other people were and simultaneously sort of discovered this interest in American politics and American history and fell in love with Washington, DC. And um, from there pretty much decided I was gonna go to a liberal arts college and do music and theater on the side and stick with um, with politics and history.
0: Yeah, I think um, either uh, being an actor or actress on on Broadway is one of the most popular answers I'd get on Xi Dynasty. So I love to find these kind of <laughs> common threads. Um, that That's be so better. funny. So what was your major in college when you went to
1: Pomona? So I was um, a joint major in American studies and politics.
0: And what was it about American history and politics that fascinated you? Like what what was so exciting about that at the time?
1: You know, it's a great question. I mean, part of it was that same summer going to Carnegie Mellon and seeing how much history there was on the East Coast, having grown up in California, where I feel like obviously there is a whole bunch of, of not great uh, sort of white supremacist mm-hmm. history with respect to Native Americans and Latinx people. But there isn't sort of the, I don't know, the sort of traditional American revolution and all of that, which of course, is also laden, as we very well are aware now. But I just loved like being surrounded by places that were important to the founding of the country and to learning about all of the complexities of that. I really loved uh, American Studies for its sort of critical look at American culture, but also for the pairing of history with literature and thinking about the social movements that were happening kind of around literature, around history and around politics. Um, I don't know, I just sort of found it really fascinating to think about how we have been shaped by our history and our legacy here, both sort of like like the good and the underbelly of that.
0: Yeah, and you live in Washington DC now, right? I do, yeah. Yeah, you know, I'm embarrassed to tell you, like, my first time visiting was, like, two years ago, and I just remember visiting Washington and just, like, seeing, like, our country, like, obviously in a whole different way. It just had such a different meaning all of a sudden, you know,
1: it just... Yeah, it just- I mean, the mon- when I first came here that summer, I, like, fell in love with the monuments, and um, I remember that first day, I was by myself and took the bus down to the monuments and spent the whole day walking around, and... Yeah, I mean, I just thought it was really powerful and interesting and I, I still think that. I mean, there is a lot here to reflect on.
0: Very different than Los Angeles.
1: Very different. Although LA, you know, LA has its, its charms too and I miss it, but yeah, it's very different. Like you feel grounded here in the past and I feel an imperative to make the future better than the past and more equal than the past. Fantastic. What kinds of political work did you do um, when you were in college? Actually, the very first thing I did was um, work on redistricting and helping some consultants to figure out how to draw district lines. And then I worked on a congressional campaign. And then um, I came out to DC for an internship. I uh, worked on Capitol Hill for a month and then at a, at a think tank for a month. I'm doing research on welfare policy and advocating for the earned income tax credit. All
0: right, so after college, you moved to Washington to work for the House Judiciary Committee as a staff assistant, tell us what kind of work that entailed.
1: Oh, that entailed very glamorous work of answering phone calls and making hearing binders and assisting. I was the only person who wasn't a lawyer working for the, the, the Crime and Criminal Justice Subcommittee, which at the time was chaired by none other than Chuck Schumer, who now, of course, is a Senate Majority Leader. Mm -hmm. And what was really cool about that summer, the summer of 1994, was when the crime bill was being negotiated, so the crime bill that we're now hearing a lot about, Uh, and I just remember being in a committee room in the middle of the night with these like lions of the Senate, like Ted Kennedy and Alan Simpson and other sort of luminaries, and it was, you know, somebody who had studied politics and political science in college was just really pretty cool. A lot of history a lot of like thinking through how policy affects people's lives but yeah being like a lonely a lowly staff assistant on a on a subcommittee is like not particularly glamorous work but it was really interesting and you know was one of the experiences that has just underscores like the more that you dig into your work um, and the more you engage yourself and the more you take on the more you get out of the experience
0: and what was it like working as a woman on on the hill
1: You know, it's funny. I never, at the time, I didn't really think about it. Um, The subcommittee that I worked for had four lawyers, and it was an equal gender split. Um, When I look back in retrospect, I can see the gender dynamics somewhat present, I guess, but it was not something I thought a ton about. There were a couple of moments where I was like, oh, I'm like both a young person and a woman in this space, Uh, and that makes me stand out, but you know, it was it was probably blissfully unaware, I guess. Um,
0: yeah. yeah. I, I think back then it also wasn't such a hot topic, right? It wasn't something we talked It
1: really about. wasn't. I mean, I, I, I feel like I had friends in college who were definitely more attuned to gender inequity and to the sort of, especially for women of color, the overlapping um, challenges and barriers and biases. I mean, I would, you know, somewhat shamefully say that I didn't, I mean, I think in our sort of our generation of young women in college, the over, overriding sense was like very second wave feminist, like we've arrived, right, Um, without sort of what I know now to be sort of persistent gender inequality, persistent occupational segregation, persistent wage discrimination and wage differentials um, and real limitations in kind of the systems and investments um, that are not there that help to support women's equality in the workforce. And that's, those are all the things I work on now. So I'm obviously you know very attuned to them.
0: Love it. I mean, you know, I think about when I just started my, Career after college and just my teenage years. And it, it's just, I don't know. I guess there was just, for me at least, there was just kind of an acceptance that women weren't treated the same. And you kind of just, you know, you just didn't deal with it as much. You just kind of.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think I sort of just assumed I'd be able to do whatever I wanted. Um, and, you know, I think back to like my choice of a spouse. And it never would have occurred to me to have anything less than a 50-50 partnership.
0: Right. Understood. So after leaving DC, you ended up at the University of Michigan, working towards a master's degree in political science. Tell us about that.
1: Yeah. So I, you know, as I was working on Capitol Hill, was thinking that I, you know, needed, needed more school because lots of people in DC have more school um, and that I had loved I loved my undergrad work in political science um, and politics. And so applied to PhD programs, uh, got there and very quickly decided I did not wanna study politics and political science as much as I wanted to be making change right. and doing it. So I got, a, I got fast-tracked a master's degree um, and then came back to DC. So I was only gone for know, eight months, nine months, came back to DC and started working in political polling, political polling and policy issue polling. Um, for a variety of progressive candidates and nonprofit, mostly progressive organizations and media organizations, um, and that is the coolest job ever uh, for anybody who wants it. To-
0: for so many people listening, a lot of the terms that you're saying are yeah. like really foreign, especially
1: for me. So, what does tell us what a, what does a pollster do? So, a pollster does public opinion research. So, if you you know see the results of focus groups um, or see survey results about what 80% of Americans believe, that's what I was doing. So I was designing survey questionnaires and analyzing data and deciding what the story was um, and then providing advice to clients about what to do with whatever problem they were trying to solve.
0: And so tell us what role does that data kind of play in the political landscape? Does it actually like move things forward? Tell us how that works.
1: Yeah, I mean, it it can do a few things. It can, provide a snapshot of like where public opinion is, what people's values and attitudes and preferences are. Um, So, you know, in in the marketing world, it's, you know, do you want Coke or do you want Pepsi? Do you want a grape juice or do you want cherry juice? Um, Do you want your product to be a natural product or do you not care if there are chemicals in it? Right. Um, In the issue and policy space, it is anything from, you know, what are the top issues facing the country today? What's most of concern to you personally? Um, and that can help candidates. It can help issue organizations figure out how to position themselves um, to to either affect public opinion or to use the public opinion that exists to move a campaign forward. Got it. And so, if
0: that wasn't enough school, you then decided to go to law school.
1: I did. So um, I followed my now husband uh, from D.C. to North Carolina mm-hmm. and did marketing, public opinion, marketing research um, for corporations and very quickly decided that that was not where my passion, well, maybe not that quickly, but decided that wasn't where my passion was. Um, And that one of the things I had loved about uh, the polling and the the political work that I had done was thinking through how to use public opinion and messaging and communications to actually change policy. And Mm -hmm. so I had sort of the background in the first part, I didn't have the background in the sort of legal and policy part. And so I went to law school, essentially, to be able to marry those um, kind of painting and and marketing and communications and public opinion skills with some knowledge about how, politic, how pol- public policy and law work. So I went to the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill Law School and did a mix of pro bono work. Um, I went down to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina to help people figure out how to clear the title to their homes or how to access um, divorce in case the courts were closed for long periods of time, but also took kind of a traditional path. So I was editor-in-chief of the law review and sort of like took a stab at sort of, you know, traditional law, but really had in mind that I wanted to affect policy and and policy change.
0: Awesome. And so soon after you became a lawyer, you joined the National Partnership for Women Families in 2010. Is that correct?
1: Yeah. Well, I first, um, I clerked for a judge on the 10th circuit in um, Salt Lake City. And so that involved, you know, researching and writing legal opinions on a whole range of topics. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I practiced law at a big law firm here in DC for, I guess, a couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's actually where I became most passionate and most interested in paid leave and, and gender equity in the workplace. And
0: so what kinds of policies did you work to pass when you were working with the National Partnerships for Women and Families?
1: Yeah, so I was at the National Partnership for Women and Families for about nine years, a little more than nine years. And um, I came in to direct the Work and Family Program or Workplace Policy Program. And that focused on um, helping to win access to paid sick days, earned paid sick days for workers across the country. Um, When I got there, there were two citywide municipal um, paid sick days laws. And these essentially say that workers have, an, have the right to earn an hour of paid sick time for every 30 or so hours that they work. Um, at the time, San Francisco and Washington DC had um, paid sick days laws. Milwaukee had a law that was under challenge, mm-hmm. uh, but that was the, those were the only places in the United States where any worker had a guaranteed right to paid sick time. And that's important because at the time, only about 60% of the whole workforce And only about 20% of lower wage workers had access to paid sick time. So this means like people could be fired, um, or could lose pay, simply because they had the flu and couldn't go to work, or they would come to work because they couldn't afford to to not get a paycheck that day, or were scared about losing their job, and create a public health hazard. So um, I was able to work on most of the state and local paid sick days laws that now exist. Um, So remember 2010, we had two municipal paid sick days laws. There are now uh, 13 uh, state paid sick days laws and more than two dozen municipal laws. Um, So I was able to work with the folks on the ground um, in states and localities that were pushing for those laws to provide technical assistance and legal help to help get those over the finish line. I worked on paid family and medical leave. Um, Similar story when I got to the national partnership in 2010, There were two states that had programs set up that allowed workers who were having a baby or needed to care for a family member or themselves had a serious health condition to guarantee those folks a portion of their wages um, when they needed to take leave from work. And I was able to work again with state advocates across the country. And there are now, um, thanks to the really incredible efforts of state and local organizations, other national advocates, and, and obviously lawmakers. There are now nine states plus the District of Columbia that have paid family and medical leave laws in place. So those are kind of the two big ones. I also worked on pay equity, um, trying to strengthen equal pay laws mm-hmm. that close the very pernicious and stubborn wage gap where women who work full-time year round make about 80 cents for every dollar that are, that's paid to men who work full-time year round. And I worked on pregnancy discrimination um, to help ensure reasonable accommodations. So yeah, I was able, really lucky and privileged um, to be able to work on all of these policies that are so central to women's economic security and to family economic security and to equality.
0: Right, and toward, and towards the end of your time there, the country obviously underwent a pretty stark change in administration. So tell us what was it like when Trump took office? mean, um, it's probably felt like you were making so much progress. And how did that, how did that affect you and kind of what the work you were doing?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, if you think about, you know, sort of the the last couple of years of the Obama administration, we had been making a lot of progress on investments um, in state paid leave. We had, you know, seen and I had been fortunate to be part of executive actions around. Um, paid sick, winning paid sick days for federal contractors, um, winning stronger equal pay laws for federal contractors, having a White House that that really valued and um, used the bully pulpit as well as policy levers to to promote gender equity. We had the 2016 election, which was obviously historic for Secretary Clinton's candidacy. And it was frankly the first time also that a Republican candidate, both uh, in the primary with Marco Rubio and in the general election with Donald Trump, had talked about paid leave specifically. Mm-hmm. And though the policy solutions were very different, it was very exciting to have candidates on both sides of the aisle uh, be talking about paid leave as a gender equity issue and as an economic uh, family economic security issue. So, Fast forward to election day, where I think you know, ninety percent of the country thought that that we would have our first woman president and that Hillary Clinton would be president. And um, the day after the election was really awful. Uh, so you know, my co- like the whole organization um, sat around a big conference table and literally cried um, and thought about like what this meant and what a Trump presidency says about the country, I think you know there's a lot of fear um, about the actions he would take that would hurt women and immigrants and people of color, and just the sort of hate and vitriol from that campaign. I think none of us knew how bad it would get. Um, you know, sort of, uh, there was on this very narrow issue of paid leave, the hope that we would be able to make progress. Um, but the more that Awful things were coming from the, the White House with respect to immigration and criminal you know, policing and demonizing of, of folks and stripping women of of reproductive rights and you know um, creating barriers to education educational quality all of the things um, it became harder and harder and it was like a very you know there was a, a lot of um, it was really hard. Like yeah, it's like that's really hard to keep fighting for proactive things in that moment where there was so much that was hard and that needed to be so many fire drills every week to sort of stand um, in solidarity with other fighters for equality and justice.
0: Well, it must've felt like, you know, you were, you know, making progress and, you know, obviously having small wins and moving forward. And then all of a sudden just like this giant, like roadblock and, um, that must have been extremely just discouraging, thinking about, like, all the progress you had made and just not knowing what it meant for the future. How did you continue to fight for change despite by dealing with an executive administration that obviously had such different goals?
1: Well, I think part of it was looking strategically at where progress could be made. So, you know, a, a few minutes ago, I mentioned the paid sick days laws and the paid family medical leave programs that have passed across the country. A lot of those have passed since 2017. So on paid leave in particular, California, New Jersey, Rhode Island, and New York passed their paid family medical leave programs prior to 2016. But since then in 2017, um, Washington State and Massachusetts and the District of Columbia uh, passed paid family medical leave programs followed by um, Connecticut and Oregon and then Colorado in 2020, actually on election day um, at the ballot. So, thinking about states and localities as um, areas for progress, I think actually, and, and probably very relevant to this audience, um, working in partnership with companies and businesses and sort of the corporate sector to lead the way on change and to see businesses really standing up in a new way in the public sphere for um, things that, you know, standing against hate and things that were wrong and standing up for kind of better practices uh, was really encouraging. And then I think just the power and solidarity um, and, and kinship and partnership of the progressive movement, which really came together to fight back against all of the bad, bad and hateful things that were happening. And yeah, um, so
0: a really good kind of learning moment for people if you think about it, just because you know, here you are in a position where you know you feel like you're making progress and you know, in a sense, you're kind of shut down and you probably felt really defeated for a second. But then You kind of reshift your energy to the places where, you know, you can make a difference and maybe, you know, the agenda has to change for a while, but, you know, you don't stop. You just kind of redirect the energies to places where, you know, you can actually make a difference. So I think that's really, really awesome to hear. Okay. So 2019, you left um, to continue to fight for national paid family and medical leave and joined New America.
1: Is that correct? Yeah, I had a wonderful opportunity put before me um, to be able to step out of the day-to-day of being a senior leader at the National Partnership, to step out of having to fundraise and to, you know, the, the joy, but also the work in leading a team, to be able to step into this role as a senior fellow, where my job was to help, um, help figure out and ha- help others figure out how to move national paid family and medical leave forward. And the reason that that's important is everybody's had, many people have had sort of personal experiences with needing to take time away from work to care for a baby, or to care for an aging parent, or to deal with their own serious health issue. But, you know, and sometimes you might have been paid during that time, sometimes you might have had to take an unpaid leave, perhaps you left a job, but the US is an outlier when it comes to this issue. So. Almost every other country on the planet and every other high wealth country um, guarantees access to paid leave to new mothers when they have a baby. Mm -hmm. Almost every other high wealth country guarantees some paid leave to new fathers when a child is born. All but two high wealth countries guarantee paid sick leave. Um, The United States doesn't do any of these things. We treat access to paid leave as an employee benefit, as something individual that you have to figure out. And what that means is that only 20% of workers in the private sector in the United States have access to paid family leave when a child arrives or a family member needs care. Um, Just 40% have access to personal medical leave through a temporary disability insurance program. Only about 75% now, and this growth has been thanks to the sick days laws I mentioned, have access even to a single paid sick day. And when you disaggregate by income level and by job type, Um, We're looking at just 5% of low-wage workers that have access to designated paid family leave at their jobs, fewer than one in five that have access to longer-term, kind of short-term disability for a a serious health issue. And so I became really, really passionate about this issue even before I got to the National Partnership. Mm -hmm. I became more passionate as I worked on it and heard stories and sort of saw the economic and health and labor force impacts. And so when I had the opportunity to spend all of my time focused on how we could win a national pay well, I jumped at it. And that, you know, has involved um, lots of work with policymakers. It's involved a lot of work with um, the hundreds of organizations across the country that are working on this issue. It's involved working with private sector leaders to make the case for public policy. Um, and it's involved, you know, writing and public speaking and really helping all of those stakeholders to imagine a country where. People actually have guaranteed access to paid family and medical leave when a child is born or a personal or family health issue is serious enough to take you out of work for, for a period of weeks um, or months.
0: Understood. And we're going to dig more into that, but I just I have a, a kind of an interesting question because some of the um, people on my team were asking and myself as well. You're the first woman on Chi Dynasty to have the title as a senior fellow. What does that mean?
1: Well, it means different things in different places, but essentially it means I have the freedom to think deeply and act strategically um, with respect to moving people forward wow. in a particular way. So fellows, there are think tanks, especially here in DC that have fellows who do senior fellows and fellows that do all sorts of different things. But essentially, in my case, it means I am um, have the luxury and privilege of being freed up to move this issue forward in the way that I I see fit.
0: And how many people work on your team?
1: So I sit with a team called the Better Life Lab um, which works on a range of work family and gender justice issues. The director is Bridget Schulte who's a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and author and there are uh, I guess the three other other folks um, who all work around kind of creating narratives and digging into research on work family justice issues.
0: Awesome. Give us a a little bit of a a brief kind of history of kind of milestones of paid family leave in this country.
1: Well, so we start, you know, with nothing um, and access to paid leave had always been, and access to any kind of leave, frankly, had been either negotiated through collective bargaining agreements for the small and and declining share of the workforce that's unionized, Mm -hmm. or it is really case by case, like whatever an employer wants or chooses to provide to their employees. Um, and so you see big divides by the size of company um, or, or business, by the type of job that somebody has, by the wage level, by whether somebody is hourly or a full-time you know, uh, salaried employee. The very first law that was passed in the US related to leave um, is called the Family and Medical Leave Act, which was passed in 1993. And that it was the first uh, law that Bill Clinton signs. And fun fact, like he says that this is the law that people thank him for more than any other law because it directly touched people's lives and their ability to be there for their baby's first smile or their parents' last breath. And that law applies to um, workplaces with more than 50 employees in a 75-mile radius mm-hmm. and workers who have been on the job for at least a year and worked 1,250 hours in the past year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Covers about just under 60% of the workforce. I mean, 56%. Um, and this guaranteed unpaid, but job-protected leave and a continuation of health benefits. Didn't require any pay. And again, a lot of workers are carved out. Um, the workers that are carved out tend to be women, tend to be younger people, tend to be less educated people, and tend to be people of color. So exactly the people who probably can't afford an unpaid day off and certainly can't afford to lose a job. But it was a historic first step. It, it was a nine-year Fight to pass that law, survived two George Bush vetoes, um, but but ultimately passed Congress with bipartisan support and was signed by Bill Clinton in 1993. And then things really moved to the state level. So California passed the first paid family leave program, layered on top of its longstanding um, personal medical leave or temporary disability insurance program in 2002. New Jersey passed its program, same thing, paid family leave on top of a pre-existing temporary disability insurance program for personal medical leave or maternity leave purposes. In two thousand eight, um, Rhode Island did the same in twenty thirteen, and then New York did the same in twenty sixteen.
0: You're like a history book. I love, I love that you know all this by heart. So fantastic. So as you as you continue, kind of you know to to advocate and kind of fight for more, is the goal to just you know, one fail swoop to make it all happen? Or do you, are there small goals and milestones that you try to tell us about your approach on how to get to the end goal?
1: Yeah, well, I think it's both and. So since 2013, there is a bill pending in Congress called the Family and Medical Insurance Leave Act or the Family Act, which would create a national paid family and medical leave program, really similar to the States. And I can explain more about that in a second, but it would guarantee up to 12 weeks of paid leave Um, to workers who need to care for a new child, a seriously ill or injured family member for their own serious health issue, um, or for certain military caregiving purposes if a a family member is deployed or comes back injured. This would provide uh, two-thirds of wages when somebody needs to take up to 12 weeks away um, and would prevent employers from retaliating against workers who need to take time away from work. Um, So this would create a national paid leave standard, which of course employers could always top up, um, but it would guarantee essentially that every working person, no matter where they live or who they work for or what their job is, would have access to paid family and medical leave. So winning a policy like that, like that or better, um, is sort of the gold standard, not even a gold standard, but just like the basic minimum of what we should have. And of course, like continuing state innovation continuing to encourage employers to offer leave benefits, which tons of research shows has, has important ROI. Right. Um, these are all the pieces. Um, I'm really happy to say we were able to, to win actually in the Trump administration um, with the democratic control of Congress in the house, 12 weeks of paid parental leave for federal workers who have a new baby.
0: Awesome. And that happened
1: in 2019. So that was sort of an incremental step. The state work-
0: that's so crazy, that's so- I know,
1: right? Um, The state has been incremental steps working with companies to offer paid leave, not just to their highly compensated workers, but also to their um, support staff and hourly workers. This has all been part of a strategy to create a recognition that paid leave is good for workers and families and businesses in the economy. And so, you know what's exciting right now as we talk is um, that we're expecting next week for President Biden to lay out um, his vision for what families and the economy need, and part of that will almost certainly be a national paid leave program along the lines of what I just described. Um, so this is sort of the, the, the it's go time, it's the moment um, for a lot of us who have been working on this issue.
0: So tell us, um, how does paid family
1: leave impact the economic gap faced by women in this country? So paid leave is deeply connected to women's labor force participation um, and to women's earnings. when. Women don't have paid leave and they don't feel supported at their workplaces, Um, particularly around the birth of a child. They're much more likely to leave work. If they leave a job, it's hard to come back. Um, It's hard to come back at a wage level that's greater than the wage level that you left. Mm -hmm. So what happens, one of the really detrimental impacts is that lack of paid leave means reduced labor force participation, reduced earnings. Um, And that's both a short-term income problem, but it also contributes to the gender wealth gap, uh, which persists between sort of women's wealth um, later in life and men's wealth. And then for women of color, all of this is much worse, less likely to be in jobs with access to paid leave, less likely to have savings to fall back on or to use if you have to take an unpaid leave, more likely to leave work, less likely to have wealth, um, and that accumulates. And so, paid leave is one piece of what we need to create greater gender equity um, overall.
0: How has the pandemic affected all these stats?
1: Yeah. I mean, the pandemic has been um, a, a t- an earthquake, essentially, a really bad, like, you know, 8.0 earthquake um, for women. Um, three million, almost three million women left the workforce last year, a large portion of them because of caregiving responsibilities. At the same time, the women that have continued to work, a lot of them have been on the front lines of the pandemic right. um, in jobs where they did not have access to, to a safe workplace, did not have access to, to paid sick time, um, did not have access to child care or to stable child care. Um, had family caregiving responsibilities where they were constantly worried about bringing COVID home to, to already vulnerable loved ones. Um, this this has been a really rough time and for women who have been able to work from home, um, you know, there's so much research about how they have continued to shoulder the weight of providing care to children and to loved ones, even if, if they and a, a male partner are home. So. You know, this, I think, has been a real wake-up call. Um, It's both been devastating. It's been devastating to women's employment um, and to, you know, I think could potentially be devastating or have devastating consequences, you know, going forward. Um, Women's labor force participation right now is at the same level that it was in 1988. So we've essentially lost more than three decades of um, progress. But more than that, I think, you know, it's also been a wake-up call to a lot of women who haven't really thought deeply about um, the interconnection between paid leave and child care and and elder care um, and women's workforce participation and advancement. And that, I think, has been a a silver lining. And I think for policymakers, too, there's been a real wake-up call. Um, And that means that we're seeing policies like paid leave, like child care, like home and community-based care, what some of us are calling care infrastructure, really part of a, a conversation about what it will take to recover um, and to build a more equitable economy. And I think that's a really exciting, you know, silver lining of what's been a very dark time.
0: Very. And Vicki, if you were to wave a magic wand and design a new and design new systems for women and families with respect to work and economic security, what would they include?
1: Absolutely. Access to universal Affordable quality childcare with wages for childcare workers um, that value the important work that they're doing and that create a pre- professional uh, work environment for them so that they stay and want to continue to be professional childcare workers instead of leaving, as so many childcare workers do. I would absolutely create um, a public policy that guarantees paid family and medical leave for all serious. Issues like having a child, like caring for a loved one, like dealing with your own health issue. Um, and I would create a culture that supports people using that policy. Um, so often we hear, you know, these very, we know, misplaced concerns about misuse of policies like paid leave. But the reality is um, that we know from states and from employers' experiences that people use these sparingly. People don't, people want to be working, they want to be contributing, they want to be supporting their families and access to policies like paid leave and childcare make it possible for them to do that. So I would also, you know, I think if I were gonna wave a magic wand, you know, I would try to erase all of the implicit bias that exists. And that's probably been reinforced through COVID around gender and women as workers um, to, to reveal that actually women are dedicated, more, you know, organized, um, able to multitask because that's what they're doing often in their homes, um, and, you know, no more than they have been in this past this past really difficult year.
0: And what about the pay gap? How does the wage gap relate to paid leave, childcare, and other things you've been talking about?
1: Yeah, so the wage gap is exacerbated by um, by lack of access to supports like childcare and paid leave. So women, you know, will commonly take, more commonly than men, take time out of the workforce. They may accept a lower paying job. They may turn down a promotion because they have care responsibilities and there isn't a, an infrastructure in place to support those. And anytime you have a work interruption, anytime you take a lower paying job, you're setting yourself up for, um, for having that follow you into the future. And then that that is exacerbated because we also don't have prohibitions in many places on like asking for a prior salary when you're applying for a job. Right. So if you've worked part time, if you've taken a lower paying job because of care responsibilities, you then go to your next job interview and your, the prospective employer asks you for your salary history and it's lower, that may influence your, your next salary. So another piece of this um, that, that I've worked on over time are um, pay discrimination and, and pay equity laws, which would prohibit employers from asking about your salary in setting your next pay level. Um, so these are all parts of a, a puzzle that you know could add up to a really beautiful picture around gender equality. But right now the puzzle pieces are all disaggregated and too many of them are missing, frankly.
0: Understood. And so what do you expect to see from the Biden-Harris administration in Congress?
1: Well, I'm really excited by what I've been reading and hearing about the American Families Plan. Um, my understanding is that it will include a proposal for a national paid family and medical leave program, that it will include robust investments in childcare and early education, Um, that it'll include an extension of the child tax credit, which was part of the American Rescue Plan, which means more money to families with children in middle and lower incomes. Uh, And I think this is, you know, it's called the American Families Plan, but it's really um, a complement to the American Jobs Plan that was rolled out, which includes historic investments in home and community-based care and better wages for caregivers and more money for child care facility construction and retrofitting. Um, And this is all part of, what we need to be able to have all of us, everybody contributing to the workplace, to the economy. You know, These are job creating and job enabling policies. Um, and I'm excited that we will see them. Uh, the next, that is the first, that's the first threshold to cross of course, is having the president endorse and propose these policies. The next step is making sure that Congress takes action and takes action quickly. Um, I think we've seen that, that women in particular Um, need to be able to recover from this pandemic and that child care and paid leave are essential to doing that. You know, time is of the essence. We have a narrow window to get these policies enacted. um, And I would not want to see sort of a protracted debate about roads and bridges usurp um, the momentum uh, that's coming from from workers, from activists, from businesses um, in support of of more robust and historic investments in care. Awesome.
0: And If you would pick one, the single biggest thing holding back the fight for national paid leave, what would be that one thing?
1: I think a a fear about new policy. Um, And and what I would say is that these policies are now tested at the state level. We see the evidence um, in terms of health and economic security and equity, gender equity, and small businesses um, really feeling supported by paid leave policies. And all of these things, the fear that holds us back um, is really to the detriment of the country and to really the, the greatest asset that any business in any country has, which is its people.
0: So Vicki, what's the most satisfying thing for you about this work and the work you do?
1: I think it's when I get to talk to workers, uh, people, women, but, but all workers really, to use the policies um, that have been won at the state level um and to to hear the difference that it's made for them um and to you know frankly to like see new glimmers of recognition um in the private sector when corporate leaders step out in support of policies that are the right thing to do and that they've seen work in their companies or that they can't afford in their own company but they are advocating for in terms of public policy um to hear business owners and especially small business owners talk about the difference that it's made to them or would make to them to have a paid leave policy in place is very heartening. Um, And to see the growth and groundswell of support among policymakers as well. Um, This has moved from sort of a marginal issue to a very mainstream issue in the time that I've worked on it. And that's been incredibly gratifying. And what keeps you up at night? I think the concern that we won't seize this moment for everything that it needs to be seized for and and sort of politics uh, will get in the way of smart policy politics tend to do that.
0: So that brings us to our very last question, which is how do you define success for yourself personally?
1: Ooh, that's a good one. I think um, I'm very tenacious, maybe annoyingly tenacious. And so for me, success looks like putting forward the best and most creative effort I can, um, looking for every opportunity to move an issue forward. Um, and knowing that I did everything I could to try to make to make whatever the goal was happen. Even if I don't succeed, I feel like um, as long as i have have done everything possible, um, then I'm happy.
0: Love it. Well, I think that you have answered all of my questions. I've learned so much from you today, and I know that my audience will too. I'm so excited that we got to connect after so many years. Me too. Thank you so much for um, the important work that you do you're incredibly passionate, like just sitting here and listening to you. I'm so inspired. I can just tell that you love, love what you do. And I just, you know, it makes me feel so good to, to see you, you know, so many years later, I'm just like loving um, the work that you're doing. Um, We all know. Thank you.
1: Thank you for the chance to be here. Yeah. And if, you know, if, if your listeners do want to get involved, there are many ways to to take action. Um, there are coalitions, uh, like the paid lead for all coalition. There are coalitions of business organizations. Um, folks should feel free to DM me on Twitter and I'm I'm happy to connect.
0: Fantastic. All right. Well, Vicki, I think that, uh, that's it for today. And thank you again for being on our podcast.
1: Thank you, Valerie. It was great to see you. Thank you so much for everything you do as well to lift up so many incredible women as part of this work. Always. (laughs)